If you would open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 20, not Luke, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 48. I was sitting there thinking Luke, and I said, no, it's Matthew. And then I got up here and said, Luke. <laughs> Y'all know what that's like. <laughs> All right. We are studying the Olivet Discourse. We're getting down to the so what. I, I love this because we are taught theology all the way through the Bible. And then we ask, how then shall I live? Kind of like, so what? And this is the so what. We're supposed to be ready. He teaches us how to be ready, what to look for. He's given us events to look for the last days. And keep in mind now, he is addressing in Matthews, particularly Israel. And their applications to the rest of us. But it helps us understand the context of what's being said here. Because this, these are passages that almost looks like a, a person could lose their salvation, get cast into the lake of fire and all this other stuff. And that's not what it's teaching at all. So let's uh, put on our thinking caps. Get ready to follow this along and, and uh, figure out exactly what God has to say to us. Let us pray. Father, we're so blessed and honored and privileged to come together and open up your word and once again be able to see what you have to say to us. Father, we know that this is information that is important because all scripture is of you and it's important for us. So I pray, Father, we'd be willing to listen, we'd be able to understand it, be able to use it wisely to glorify you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Matthew twenty four forty eight, that's what we where we left off. And in, in verse forty five, quickly reading, it says, Who then is the faithful and sensible bondservant, whom his master put in charge of his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave or bondservant, whom his master, his curios, finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Now, he's been teaching us about being a bondservant and all this, but now we've got some people that claim to be bondservants, look like bondservants, and we're going to see a generic use of the word and see how, how we have to understand this. Because verse 48 says, But if that evil slave, and this word evil is kakos, now, there are different words, two different words primarily translated evil in the New Testament. Kakos means it's inherently evil in and of itself. The word poneros is the word that means to become evil. So, they're both translated evil, but they have different meanings. Like we've talked before, a gun is not kakos. But a gun can be used in the sense of poneros. It can become evil. It's not inherently evil, just like a knife is not inherently evil, but it can become evil, and that's the word poneros. So it says this is an inherently evil, and then it uses doulos. This is our word for bondservant. This word we've seen frequently. It's used 136 times. And keep in mind now, he's, a, he's addressing Israel. The context is Israel. The, the guys that are listening to this, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are Jews. Okay, so they're going to understand this a lot better than we might as Gentiles 2,000 years later. But the bondservant, 
The, the bondservant is one who serves his master uh, because of the greatness of the master. It does not inherently mean a believer. See, because many bondservants throughout the course of history have been unbelievers and they have chosen to work for this person because he's a good, good leader. He pays well, whatever it might be. And we're looking at a, at a bondservant here that is uh, re referring to an unbeliever. And we know that in part because of kakos, the word for inherently evil that is being used. The word is used in the New Testament, uh, doulos, for a bondservant of the high priest, as in John 18. So when you find the word bondservant, it does not inherently mean that it is a believer that is in view. So you have to keep this in mind because what are some of the biggest problems at the first advent that Christ is addressing? He's addressing people who put on the facade of being bondservants, the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, and they're not. They're not at all. They are putting on, they're, they're, they're phonies. Uh, the priest of the first advent, they appear to serve the Almighty, right? But they really don't. They're serving themselves. They're in it for themselves. So if that evil bondservant says in his heart, now, this has got a direct application to the religious leadership of the first century who claims to be a bondservant that really, really are not. It says, my master is not coming for a long time. Now, this is interesting because the Jews of the first advent were looking for Messiah. 28 AD, the rabbi Akiba said, woe to us, the scepters departed from Jerusalem, from Judah, actually, and Messiah has not yet come. That's a fulfillment of Genesis 49.10, one of two verses dealing with the timing of the first advent. That and Daniel 9.27 are the only two verses that deal with the timing of the first advent. The scepter, the right of capital punishment, the rulership had departed from Judah, and Messiah had not yet come. Two years later, he was walking around in their midst, and they refused to relinquish their power. And he says, my master is not coming for a long time. A lot like they said at the first advent. He's not coming. Or the Messiah we're looking for is not coming to save us from our sins. Because these, these animal sacrifices do that. And he's coming to save us from Rome. Because we've managed to cover the spiritual ourselves. We just need this physical help. A long time is the word kronizo. We get chronology out of this word group. It looks at time as a succession of events. So it's used to say for a long time. It's only used five times, and it means basically to delay or to uh, tarry on. We, we used to like that. Uh, my grandmother used to say, if the Lord tarries. And so we, we, that's familiar to us older people, but may not be to some of the other ones. Uh, but anyway... My master's not coming for a long time. And he says, this is the inherently evil bondservant. And he says in verse 49, and he begins to beat. The word begins is uh, archomai. It means to begin something, tense. The word beat is tupto. Used 13 times. And it's a word that means to thump or hit repeatedly. Now, it's much like, I don't know if any of you ever got the thump to the forehead or not okay okay Larry we you probably thumped a couple too but anyway <laughs> Lots of time. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, this word means to, to thump repeated, repeatedly. And he says beat here, beat here, and it can refer to a variety of different kind of blows, all the way from thumping like that to punching. And it, it depends on what you can find the context, but it's saying begins to beat. He's whacking on him some way. His fellow slaves, his soon dulos. Soon dulos is the word bond slave. Soon means a bond slave with, when you put it on the front of a word. His fellow bond servants, and eat and drink with drunkards. Okay, so this inherently evil slave has got a problem. He views the master's absence as an opportunity to serve himself at the expense of others. Huh. The master of Israel, put this in context, okay, the religious leaders, the master's not here, so what do we get to do? We get to run the show. Even Pilate knew it was because of envy they delivered him up. So the, the faithful and sensible slave, notice the contrast, is the one who's motivated to serve other people. That's what servanthood is given for. That's why we are to serve, is to serve other people, giving them proper nourishment at their time in history. The faithful, sensible bond servant, 45 to 47, compared with the evil bond servant by contrast. One is focused on self. The other's focused on becoming Christ-like. Matthew chapter 20. Now see, this is the contextual flow of the book of Matthew that we're pulling out to study these verses, which is very important. Luke's got a similar passage to it, but it is slightly different. So we're going we're gonna to note that. Matthew 20, 25, Jesus called them to himself, and he said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. It's not the way it's supposed to be, guys. But whoever wishes to become great among you will be your bondservant. Hmm. Whoever wishes to... Who's he talking to? The disciples. What's he saying? If you want to be great, you're going to be of service to other people. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. So Jesus sets the example there of how we as bond slaves of Christ are to function. And he says, but this is one that looks like a bond slave. See, there are those that appear to be bond slaves by their actions, but they aren't. And we know them as wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like the real deal, but they're not really the real deal. Paul warned about this in Acts 20 and other passages. They, they look like the real deal, but they've come to kill and steal and to destroy. They want to use other people to their, to their own ends. Now, <clears throat> who would we know at this day and time when Jesus is speaking this to Peter, Andrew, James, and John? How about Judas? Did he look like the real deal? The disciples didn't know he was taking money from the money box. The disciples, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, none of them looked at him and said, yeah, that guy over there. Not one of them. He had successfully infiltrated the twelve with the exception of the fact that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. He knew it all along. How about the false teachers? How about the false prophets? See also the upcoming reference to 
hypocrites that he's going to talk about. So what he's talking about here are people that claim to be bond servants of the Lord and are not. They are false about it. Now, in verse 50, it says, The master of that slave, Hokurios, Kurios, the word for Lord here, of that doulos, of that bond slave, which one? The evil one, the inherently evil one, will come. Now, I, I love this word because when you start studying Greek, you get some of these things in Greek 101, you find erkomai, where it can mean going or coming, depending on the context. I guess that's where I said, don't know if they're going or coming. So here's, here's where it came from. This is not that word. It's the word heiko, H-E-K-O, and it's a word that looks at the arrival. They got there. The master of that bondservant will arrive, not just come, will arrive on a day that he does not expect him and in an hour which he does not know. Now, what's the principle for us here? What's the principle for those guys there in the first century? Self-absorption. It's a form of drunkenness. To be totally involved in self. And it's, it's so irritating. I'm getting to where I can watch less and less TV. I don't know if any of you, if you are or not. I, when, when you find out the best thing on TV is reruns of the Big Bang Theory, you figure it out <laughs> something's drastically wrong. <laughs> okay. And here is the, it's, it's a form of drunkenness. Self-absorption. That leads one to lose track of time and pursue worthless things. When you start looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And 2 Timothy 3, we're not going to read that today. But in the last days is the way it starts out. So it's starting, it's talking to us, right? In In the last days, difficult times will come. And then it lists about 21 things. I asked how many people one time several years ago had that list of 21 things on their refrigerator. Because it's not high on the list. We like these little cute things on the refrigerator. Not long list. Well, and, and Joanna Riley made me a list, so I have it on my refrigerator. Made it, laminated it, and it's there with, held up by a magnet to remind me. So it says, in the last days, men shall be lovers of self, and that tops the list. Lovers of self, lovers of money, immoral, insensible, disobedient. I mean, on and on and on, and it describes the generation that we, that we live in. Here we are with this living in the last days and what does it stem from lovers of self and you look at all those others all those other things flow out of that that's like the general statement the summary word and out of self-absorption flows everything else could that be true it was true with satan wasn't it full of himself with the five i wills in isaiah 14 i will be like the most high yeah right He's going to give it a shot, still trying to give it a shot. But here is this self-absorption of the last day. But it's not exclusive to us. It's just going to become more manifest. People are actually trying to become their own God without realizing it. They want to set their own rules, their own standards. They only want to follow God's laws when it's convenient, 
not when it's inconvenient, and uh, on and on. I mean, even laws that are established by duly established authorities. When we, as we continue to study nations, we're going to look at duly established authority to make laws as established by God. It's set up by him for governments to make laws. That's what they do. But they're supposed to follow them themselves. When they don't, they're hypocrites. That's where the problem comes in. Now, those who, admit, who love the world miss out on experiencing the love of God. And this is what John writes about 85 A.D. This is near the end of the canon. The other disciples are already dead. And John's still cranking things out. Put his gospel together. Here's what it looks like. He wrote the gospel and the three epistles. In about mid-80s, in 96, he wrote the book of Revelation and actually survived that, got off the island and went back and died a natural death. And that's what happened to, to John. But look what he puts together. And I, I love this because in the sequence of progressive revelation, John is, it uses the clearest Greek found in the New Testament in these three epistles. It's amazing how clear the Greek is. It's so clear that that's usually the first assignment that the Greek class will give you to translate is 1 John. It's not easy, that easy to understand, but the Greek is really easy to do. Okay, now what about John? What did he do? He made it clear. What did he make clear? 1 John 2. Do not love the world. Now is, there hard, is that hard to understand? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Oh, that, that just expanded it, didn't it? You don't love the world system. You don't love the things that the world system offers. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can look in the, at this to a degree, to the degree you love the world, that, then you don't understand the love of God. You don't, you don't have that as a part of you. To the degree that you love fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. That's where you're missing out on the things of God. And this is, this is what John's saying. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. The world is passing away. Also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever, bides forever. What a blessing that is. Those who love the world miss out on experiencing the love of God. Sometimes it seems like God's far away. Well, how full of the world are we? How full of the world have we, have we become whenever the circumstances of life dictate our relationship with God? That should tell us right away that we got wrong priorities set up and established. We should want to know the Lord with every part of our being. Isn't that what the, the Shema, the great command of Israel? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. What is it? Loving with all your heart, soul, and strength. Every bit of it. To the degree we don't is the degree we don't really experience who God is. Now, what's going to happen to this evil slave? Verse 51. And it says, and we'll cut him in pieces. We get the English word dichotomy from this. Dichotomeo is a word. It's only used twice. Luke 12, 46. 
is the other place it's used, and assigned him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that little phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, we're going to need to follow along. In Luke chapter 12, he had pre Jesus had previously taught this parable. In Luke chapter 12, verse 42 through 48, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants, to give them their rations at the proper time? Sound familiar? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say that he will put him in charge of all of his possession. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Sound familiar? Now, some people say, well, this is the exact same message. No, it's different time frames, different sense of chronology. Found in Matthew, found as part of the Olivet Discourse in the book of Matthew. In Luke chapter 12, it's found by itself because the Olivet Discourse is Luke 21. So, a couple of years prior to the Olivet Discourse is when Jesus taught this. He says, and the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the unbelievers. See, the, there's a difference. Matthew says a place with the hypocrites. Luke says a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act in accordance with his will, will, will receive many lashes. He said... <coughs> But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. Now being a pastor for a long time, I've heard people say, don't teach it to me, I'll have to apply it. And they, say, they take this, well, <laughs> ignorance is bliss, and if I don't know, God's not going to get me for it. Well, he might get you for the lack to study to show yourself approved unto God is a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. See, there's kind of foolish to say that from whom everyone has been given much much will be required and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more one of the things we find out clearly from the Lord he puts you in charge of a little be faithful with a little if he puts you in charge of a lot be faithful with a lot whatever he puts you in charge of use it to serve him the main differences between Luke 12 and this passage are Matthew says assigns a place with the hypocrites. Luke says assigns a place with unbelievers. The Luke passage doesn't mention weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as you start comparing scripture with scripture, you ask what are the similarities and what are the differences? Common question to ask. Contextually, Matthew is referring to unbelieving hypocrites who tried to show up to the wedding feast without the proper attire. See, we have to go back into Matthew and track the, track the usage of this word through Matthew to figure out by the time you get to Matthew 24, what's he already said? Well, there's two or three places he's talked about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, Matthew 22, 11. And keeping in mind, Matthew's writing to Jews. That's his primary audience that he's writing to. So you have to 
understand it in the way that, that they would. Matthew twenty two eleven. when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Now, as the bride of Christ, is there going to be special wedding clothes? We're the church. Israel is not. But there's a wedding attire that is acceptable decorum to show up. At least there used to be. Uh, anymore, there's not a whole lot of acceptable decorum for anything. But there was acceptable decorum back then. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to his servants, see this is two chapters earlier, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. Now outer darkness is used two times in Matthew 8.12, two times in Matthew 22.13, our verse, and two times in Matthew 25.30 for a total of six times. So it tells us that there's something special about it. So we need to stop and figure it out, see what he's saying. The outer darkness in that place, what place? Outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, who's chosen? The ones that believe in Christ. And he knows who they are. Now the judgment in Matthew. Is for those who never accepted Christ. And his forgiveness. With the primary focus being on the Jews. Think of the Jews. The Jews are supposed to be God's people. They're, they're have an invading army. The Romans who have taken them over. And what are they supposed to be? They're supposed to still be witnesses. Of God's people. They are still supposed to worship Yahweh Elohim. What have they done? These so-called bond servants. Why do they have high priests that are not of the tribe of Levi? That's historical context. Where do they have, why do they have high priests? Caiaphas is not of the tribe of Levi. How did they get that? They bought it. God's not the least been happy with that. They look like the real deal. But they're not the real deal. They did not become believers. Because had they become believers. Then they would have been saved. But he says. Here are these people that look like the real deal. Or not the real deal. At all. They're supposed to be. The godly representatives of Jehovah Elohim. The specific time in view. Is the second advent. When is this all going to play out. Where they're assigned a place with the unbelievers and the, and the uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth cast into the outer darkness. Then you have to put to Matthew 13 with it. Matthew 13 verses 47 to 50. See Matthew has set up the contextual flow for us. We're going to see Matthew 8 in the next the next sub point. We're going to see everywhere outer darkness is mentioned. We're going to see everywhere that weeping and gnashing of teeth is found. And Matthew 13, 47, again the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. 
so it will be at the end of the age. Now this verse I remember very well because I made a big mistake one time and didn't see this verse and account for it. Now you might remember I mentioned it when we were teaching, we're right in the middle of the Olivet Discourse. One will be taken, one will be left, two will be standing in the field. And I mistakenly taught that a long time ago that it was the rapture. It's not the rapture. Because if I had studied Matthew from start to finish, instead of studying Mark and then going horizontally to Matthew 24 and Luke 21, I'd have been aware of what Matthew had already said. But it wasn't the way that I did it, so I made a mistake. And a few verses, I, I did Epi Lombano, one taken, one left. I tracked that word through all of its usages and... And I thought, well, it could be this and it could be that. And that's one of the things you learn. It's not that it could be this or it could be that. It's what is it you have to ask. And had I followed the contextual flow of the intermediate context, in fact, you can find this in foundations as a, as a reference to intermediate context, then I'd have known what that verse meant. Because it says, so it will be at the end of the age. What age? Age of Israel, right? They're at the age of Israel. Angels will come forth and will take out the wicked from among the righteous. Now, when does that happen? That happens at the second advent. What happens at the rapture? Righteous are taken out, wicked are left. Okay, for seven years. What happens after the second advent? Wicked are taken out. Righteous are left to inherit the kingdom. Two totally different events separated by seven years. And it says, It will take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And there will, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, some places are saying now this is talking about believers that get so goofy that they miss out on the millennial kingdom and they actually go through a period of torment. And that's almost like a Protestant purgatory that they're describing. And uh, it's becoming a, a popular thought and a viewpoint. And I don't subscribe to it because I think it's, it has misunderstood the systematic theology of how a lot of these flow together. When you start talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth, I don't see that for believers. I have a real hard problem seeing that as applying to believers. Now, this specifically includes the Jews who were sons of the kingdom, but they failed to accept their Messiah. Okay? They failed to be saved. Matthew 8. Here we are again. Outer darkness. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at those who were following Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. This has got to be the centurion. He said, come, heal my son. Or he said, would you heal my son? Jesus said, sure, I'll go there. He said, no, you don't need to. Can you imagine this? A Gentile? He says, I have people under me. I say, do this, do that. And they do that. You don't need to come. You just need to say the word. Right? He said, I say to you, many will come from east and west, recline 
at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is clearly millennial. You just don't get any more millennial than this. But the sons of the kingdom, who's that? The unbelieving Jews, will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place where the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the wicked taken out from among the righteous. You put it in the context, Matthew 8, Matthew 13, Matthew 24, and we'll see it again in Matthew 25. And we see, we let the scripture tell us how to understand these things. Now, <clears throat> the, the judgment to that point will include all those who seek a way of salvation other than through Jesus. Because that's what happens, isn't it? We either have to find a savior or we find a way to save ourselves. There's no other options. The most, most of the world looks for a way to save themselves. It's behind all the world religions except Christianity. And sadly, that thought's even crept into a lot of Christianity. It's not supposed to be there. Luke 13, verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's interesting when you track the, the, the use of the word the many. It's usually referring to Israel that it's, that it's talking about. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. And then he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you're from. What door? The door of the wedding feast. What door? There's one door into the, into the millennial kingdom. Starts at the rapture when the bride is taken up, made ready, comes back with him the second advent. That's the second door into the millennial kingdom for human beings that have survived the tribulation and our believers. And he's saying, if you're a Jew, you're going to understand this because he's saying they're Jews. They thought they were saved because they were Jews because they followed all the rituals and sacrifices. And he says, then he said, I don't know who you, where you're from. I don't know you. Why did he exclude them? Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When does all that happen? Second advent. When's the supernatural regathering by all the angels he's been talking about? Second advent, not rapture. Second advent's when all that happens. That's how all this comes together. Whenever the wicked are taken out and the righteous are left, where are they cast into? When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves are being thrown out. This is specifically addressing Jews. Luke 13, he was specifically addressing Jews. Weren't a whole lot of Gentiles following him around. And he says, and they will come from east and west and north and south. How will they do that? Angels will bring them from other verses. And will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Isn't that going to be great? 
sent out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we're Gentiles. We may be way down the line, but it'll still be fine because we won't be full. This is going to be a great feast, isn't it? You know, we do those potluck dinners over there. You go, gosh, I wish I had more of everything. I try to be nice. I don't want somebody to say, well, the pastor didn't like my lemon pie or whatever it was. So I try to be nice and take a little bit of everything. Max Licato said one time, I don't like lemon pie. And he said, for the next five years, all the ladies that determined that I would like their lemon pie. <laughs> and he said, I got lemon pies. <laughs> so, so I try to take a little bit of everything so nobody's offended because the pastor didn't take anything they were. But you know what I'd like to do is take a whole lot of everything. <laughs> That's what I like because it all looks so good. But I don't need to do such thing. The millennial feast, though, we can eat ourselves silly, although we, we won't be silly, will we? We'll be in a new body. It's not going to be affected. We're not going to tear it up. Our blood sugar's not going to spike. It's not going to do any of those things. We're not going to have a heart attack sitting there eating some of this stuff. We're in our new body. And we'll be able to sit there and eat as long as we, as we want to eat. He says, and behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first will be last. Some of them think they got it all right. Hmm. It'll be last. It's for those who never use the assets that God has provided. Beginning with salvation from the penalties for sin. What is this weeping and gnashing of teeth? Matthew 25. Okay, here we are. We have looked at all the usages of outer darkness. We've looked at weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness is the place that it's, that it's talking about there. Matthew 25, 29. For everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. The one who does not have, even what he does have, will be taken away. He's talking there about the, the, the bondservant that didn't use what he had. There, that whole thing is the picture of the parable of the talents. And if he gives you five talents, use them all. If he gives you one talent, two talents, use it. If you, just, if you get upset, and my master will be a long time coming. And he's a hard and exacting man. And I didn't want to lose it and start making living your life by excuse. And he says, I'm going to take what you got and give it to somebody else. Now... <clears throat> Everyone who has more shall be given. He'll have an abundance. The one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the place will include a furnace of fire. It'll include a furnace of fire located in the outer darkness trying to put all the verses together, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 37. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end 
of the age. And the reapers are the angels. See how it puts all the pieces back together in here once again? The angels will go and bring his elect from the four winds and all this. It's taking us to the second advent. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. And those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. Now this is only mentioned here in Matthew 13:50, the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is, this is pretty bold. This is pretty clear. And he's telling us when all this is going to happen, what he's talking about is the second advent. And that at that point in time, into the furnace of fire in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting thing. Wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cast into a fiery furnace a long time ago? <laughs> and what did they have? The protection of the Almighty. That's what they had was the protection of the Almighty. Now, <clears throat> this has been previously identified as Hades. From Luke chapter 16, you can go into Luke chapter 16 with me. This is a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus. And he says, now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Now this is, hot, this is a transliteration out of the Greek. Hades is the way it's actually pronounced. It's, it's used ten times in the New Testament. It's also translated as hell. So it kind of goes back and there's no, when you have a translation that uses Hades and hell, it's the same word. It's the main point here. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, what is he talking about? In the ancient world, I don't have a picture of it, but they viewed Sheol in this manner. Sheol was basically the grave, the underground, after, after death location. And they had one side that was Hades, or torments, that included Tartarus, the place of the... the angels who infiltrated prior to the flood that's found in Jude and they had that and then they had a great gulf fix that's taught here and on the other side was paradise also known as Abraham's bosom and so they're able to see each other okay 
And they saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So this rich man figured out that he wasn't in a good spot. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Now, <clears throat> this is a parable. People have been arguing, well, it's a parable and you can't make a doctrine out of it, but it's a in divinely inspired parable, so it has to be considered. But Abraham said, Child, remember, during your life you received your good things, likewise Lazarus, bad things. Now he is being comforted here. And you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, a great gulf fixed, which the indication to the Jews was that chasm led to the bottomless pit, see, which were hellfire. So they, the believing Jews were kept in paradise, Abraham's bosom, till Christ went and made proclamation to those who were then in prison, and he led captivity captive, and he took them out of there. So their souls went into the presence of the Lord. Okay, that's the common belief of, of what happened to the age of Israel believers, pre-church age believers, at the ascension of the Lord into heaven. And then on the other side, that left torments. Now, <clears throat> and he says, here's this great gulf fixed. In order that those who wish to come over here to you may not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. This is a rich man. Well, if you're not going to send Lazarus here, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Interesting comment. But he said to them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Who rose from the dead? John 11, Lazarus. Why was he selected here? This is before the Lord raised him up. Okay? But he, here is uh, Lazarus. But who else rose from the dead? Jesus. Okay. He said, what have they got now? Moses, they've got the law and the prophets. They ought to be able to figure out they need a Savior. They should be able to figure it out. But he said, if they don't listen to them, they're not going to listen to anybody else. And what happened? Lazarus went back. What happened? The people were weeping and wailing and gnashing of their teeth almost that Lazarus had died. That was a typical Jewish way of doing things was overdone. Their, their emotions were way overdone whenever they got involved into grieving. And Jesus said, Mary, Martha, don't you know I am the resurrection and the life? You know, well, I know he'll be raised at the end of the age. <laughs> And the Lord said, you just don't understand it yet, do you? In him is the resurrection and the life. That's where it comes from. He raised Lazarus. 
and he himself was raised from the dead. And he went back and told them. And what did they do? Rejected him. Rejected him. Those who do not believe in Messiah end up in Hades or hell. Matthew eleven twenty three, Luke ten fifteen. Hades slash hell contains conscious beings who would like to prevail against the kingdom of heaven. Matthew sixteen eighteen says, I will say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. And get this, and the gates of Hades, hell, will not overpower it. Hmm. The gates of Hades, hell, has to have conscious beings if they want to overpower it. If there's no, un if there's no conscious beings, how would they remotely start to try to overpower it? Hades, hell, is a place of conscious torment, the verse we just, just read here. Jesus, bearing the penalty for our sins, got a taste of the torment. But he was not left there. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He got a taste of it when he paid the penalty for our sins. Did he spend three days in hell? That's been an argument um, the church has argued over forevermore. And it, it, he didn't need to. He underwent enough torment right there on the cross. He didn't need to. <clears throat> It's kind of like if he didn't go into hell for three days. And then some would say, well, that wasn't long enough. Okay. That he under he who knew no sin was made to be sent on our behalf. Can you, to be perfect and experience the jolt of imperfection. To bear the sins in his body for us on a cross. Hell couldn't even have touched it. Sometimes we argue over the wrong stuff. Jesus has the keys to death and hell, indicating he controls who goes in and gets out. Revelation chapter 1, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The rider on the pale horse is going to lead the armies from hell, trying to destroy people from the earth. Revelation 6. There's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Rider on the pale horse was not Clint Eastwood. <coughs> Made for a good movie, but it's not going to be Clint Eastwood back from the dead. It's just not going to happen. But here is the fourth horse, a picture of the... Four different things the Antichrist is going to use throughout the tribulation. He broke the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come on. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, a pale horse. And he who sat upon it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. To kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by all the wild beasts of the earth. Well, when you start seeing what's left after the rapture. After the rapture, one out of six people profess to be a Christian on the earth. Say six billion. I know there's over seven billion. That means about five billion to be left. If, if we just go with a six number. After the rapture. Enough to make an impact. Okay. Then a fourth of the people. My numbers are right. That's another 1.25 billion people taken out by the fourth horse. 
And then you have the kings of the east coming in. They take out a third of the population. By the time you get to the second advent, not a lot of people left by comparison. Still probably a billion or so on the planet. It'll be significant, but not anything like what it was seven years in a day earlier. Nothing like it. Hell will be emptied, thrown into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. <clears throat> and we know as Christians that's not where we want to be. Great white throne is for unbelievers. And whose present, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. This is the almighty showing himself. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. You know, that's the last thing we, wanted, we want to be judged on when it comes to where we're going to spend eternity. Because our deeds don't add up to his one deed on a cross. All of them. And it says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of the life, literally, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the end. Right there. That's what happens to hell. Cast into the lake of fire. Now, <clears throat> it's not a happy picture, is it? For those who die in unbelief. And Lord wants us to take a message of good news out. That however it goes from there, we don't have to be part of it. We don't have to be through faith in the Messiah. An unmeritorious work. That's what faith is. It's not about what we did. It's about what he did. Totally, completely, forevermore. And if we'd miss that, what a shame. What a shame it would be. We've got a message this whole world needs to know. Let's don't be bashful with it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again. For your goodness, your grace, your love, for your blessings, for your test. Thank you for all you've poured out upon us in the beloved. Father, this message that you've given us is so very simple. To put our faith in your son, who took our place on a cross, really died, was buried, rose again the third day, and has ascended to be with you. What a message. That is the, that is the object of faith. That brings a difference in everybody's life. Let us not be bashful. Let us be bold in sharing that message. For we ask this in his name. Amen.